Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanna remind you of all of the different ways you can get your hands on one of my designs. Impact Fashion is a line of size-inclusive, modest clothing available in sizes two through 24. I personally design and pattern every single piece in the collection so that it is fitted to perfection and every single piece runs the same. That means that once you know your size, that is your size in every single piece in the collection. Pretty cool, no? You can shop the collection online at impactfashionnyc.com. Shipping is totally free in the US and the return policy is, if I do say so myself, amazing. You have 30 days to make a decision and don't even have to pay return shipping or any sort of annoying restocking fee or anything like that. Impact Fashion can also be found at the address at American Dream Mall. The address is a curated, modest department store and definitely worth a visit if you are not an online shopping type of person. The American Dream Mall is located right next to the Meadowland Sports Complex in New Jersey. And to get to the address, you're going to want to park in Lot C, Level 3. Make a left when you walk in and you'll see the address on your right. I'm always happy to chat, whether that's to answer your sizing questions or just to get to know each other better. Find me on Instagram at impact.fashion.nyc or on WhatsApp status at 516-953-9391. You can also email me. It's rifky, R-I-V-K-Y, at impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Esquist, and on today's show, I sit down with a podcast host and recording artist to discuss her journey. She shares what her childhood in Moscow was like, why she's allergic to censorship of any kind, why it's quite hard for her to be popular, and the difference between culture and halakha. Francisca Cosman is always pushing boundaries. One of the first Orthodox women to pursue a music career, and when that didn't pan out exactly how she'd like to start a podcast, she is not afraid to tackle all the issues we'd rather not think about. I was recently a guest on her show, so it's only appropriate for her to come on over here and hang out. I was a very happy, highly anxious, very big dreamer, organized, planner, artistic, creative type of kid. So happy and highly anxious to me seem like opposites. What do you mean by that? I, my, my plans and dreams sort of carried me through the anxiety of getting to those dreams and plans. Cool. So that was my um, coping mechanism, maybe (laughs) being anxious. No, the, the dreams and the goals and the organizing and planning was a way to deal with the high anxiety and pressures. That I I was very aware of since a very young age. I hear that. So what, like when you were little, what were those kind of like dreams and, and hopes and things that, that you had for yourself? What are the kinds of things that you were pursuing? I just wanted to plan out. So I shared a room with two sisters. And at one point we had a border also in our room. So two bunk beds, two desks, four armoires, or, you know, those European style closets. So I have my little shelf. I have my desk area for certain hours of the day my piano hours I get access to the piano because I have to share that with my sisters also Uh, so 
I'm very aware of my space and I'm planning and dreaming of having more of it. For example, we traveled several times a year. We visited family in the States. We visited for anyone who needs some more background. I grew up in Moscow, Russia. So, and we had no immediate family around. And we saw, I had grandparents in Switzerland. Sometimes we saw them. And then we had siblings living in Israel. I, I guess that was when I was six, seven. We already, I, my older siblings were already in Israel. So we spent Sukkot in Israel and just wanting, organizing my knapsacks for school and my suitcases, like every, everyone in the family, if they needed anything on a, on a trip, I always had everything like new sport and I owned it, you know, Band-Aid, I had everything you needed. So being super prepared for any situation <clears throat> and just thinking about how can I be more efficient about my space, about my stuff, about I guess that like getting my all my homework done as soon as it's given. So it's done in time for deadlines and my recitals. I, I was very busy and I was very organized and very focused on that. Yeah, I, I hear that. That that makes sense. You mentioned <laughs> you mentioned kind of quickly offhand that you grew up in Moscow, Russia. We should note um, that your parents are were. I don't know what the current were as word. of a year ago. They moved back to Israel two weeks after the war broke out. They actually moved and then announced after they left that they left. You say they moved. Um, they they fled. They like. Correct. Like they got on the first flight to wherever it was going to. So that's, the, you know, and they ended up in Turkey. Then they sent out WhatsApp messages to family members saying we're out. So they couldn't tell anyone they were leaving. They each took one suitcase and there are lots of articles and podcasts and a book coming, you know, that's in the works. So I'm actually learning a lot about my parents' stories and journey now that they're out and they're, they could talk freely because as long as they were living there, they were, were just realities that were never talked about right. for safety. That That must be really strange for you as a kid to... Or like not not as a kid, but like to realize looking back on your childhood that there are just like the realities of your dad's job, because that's really what being a chief rabbi is, were it's it's like political movements in a Putin controlled Russia. <laughs> like I'm even nervous talking now and I'm in the US and like I don't know what to say and I don't want to get anybody in trouble. And looking back on that, like as an adult now, that must be all really I don't even know what stressful, interesting, weird. different. I remember I I write a lot of, on my posts on my Facebook and Instagram about things that happen that I go through that I think about. I remember writing about it when it was happening. And I had like this conference call for my older brothers telling me, do you want, you know, your grandmother to have a heart attack? Take that stuff down. <laughs> and like just Mere, the the idea of talking if for anyone who doesn't know but just talking about saying the word war last february or when the war started that that was grounds for arrest they could look at your phone stop you on the street look at your phone if you were having conversations about the political situation they they called it the special operation uh you could be arrested for 13 years and convicted wow. yeah see that's so something we're that, talking like, as serious Serious old, stuff. Like as, as someone who has like <laughs> yeah. grown up in America and like born here and lived here my whole life and like has all of those like apple pie type uh outlooks on the world, <laughs> that's something that is really difficult to wrap my head around. That yeah. That, and it's something I grew up knowing existed, but I never actually experienced it. And it became this everything that was in theory, in the theory you learned and understood, 
Oper now it's uh, active. The operation is, what do you call it? You know, in the movies and they're like, okay, now we're on <laughs> oh, in like operation. It's action. Right. Active, yeah. ac activate all that no talking stuff. And now we're, we're, you know, all that stuff, you know, and we raised you with. Right now, it's, now it's like kicking yeah. in. So, yeah. Kick in. Wow. So it always you... was an underlying part there, but that was, you know, full fledged. Right. When did you leave Moscow? I left after high school, which I graduated at the age of 15 and a half. I turned Whoa. 16 in seminary. Is that and typical? Like, because I know that no. different countries have different. No, you're just a genius. Cool. So, okay, no, go no, on. no, I'm not a genius. I just started school younger, but my whole grade went from third to fifth grade. And then there was no 12th grade, just like Canada and some other countries. So because I started school turning six in September. Okay. A first grade, I had a heads up. Not necessarily in life, but in school. Yeah, <laughs> I hear that. Youngest. So you go to seminary in Israel at 16. Did you was that like you must have felt I kind was of three years younger than everyone around me? Yeah. Did people younger. like want to yeah. talk to you? Because that's basically a baby. 16 to 19 I, I is kept a it a secret <laughs> 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 until my one of my closest friends put happy sweet 16, you know, paraphernalia <laughs> all over my bed the first month into seminary. Wow. Okay. So what was that like being away from home at such a young age? I, I was like a soldier. I knew that that's what I was going to do. That's what I wanted to do. I was a planner. I was done with high school. I'm moving on to next things. My options were very limited. And my parents treated me like an adult in a way. It was my choice. My options were go to a high school in Israel. So I finished high school, go back to high school, or try to do a musical program in Moscow where I would be in a non-Jewish environment fighting to like move my exams and recitals from a Saturday or from a Friday night to a weekday, which I had to do when I was in music school, uh, the children's musical, but stakes were lower because it was a children children's musical and not, uh, and not a university or conservatory. And those were my options. And I wanted to do seminary because that's the post high school option. And I powered through, I did my own applications I arranged for my interview, dressed myself for the interview. I got myself there very, very independently. I'm grateful to my parents for teaching me those skills and really giving me the space to make those de decisions. So I can't blame them for them. But it was it's interesting. Yeah, that's definitely a different way to approach. I mean, this whole this this whole chapter <laughs> of your life. Uh, so what happened after seminary? What did what did you do? I went to Turo, so I stayed for a year and a half, and then I went to Manhattan, and then Flatbush. <clears throat> Just based on my major, I had access to more classes and diversity of teachers by switching to the Flatbush department, and then I graduated and got married the same summer, or spring, summer, almost 11 years ago. Oh, congratulations. That's a long time to be married. Um, the so so where does so, you you know, you mentioned that the Francisco show is about five years old, uh, five and a half years old at the time. I don't really know that like podcasts as a whole were such a big deal, let alone from podcasts, let alone from female podcasts. And anybody listening to the show knows that we are a big fan of from female podcasts around here of Orthodox female podcasts. So I'm curious, what made you think like what were you doing at the time? What made you think to start the show and and what were you hoping to accomplish with it? Because the Francisca show has a very unique outlook on Orthodox life as a whole. Can you tell me what you think that outlook is? But sure. 
<laughs> you you go first and then I'll tell you what my uh what what my uh viewpoint of it is. Okay, so I'll backtrack a little bit. I had my musical background. I get my bachelor's in you you gave me your complicated <laughs> degree last week, so I'll give you my complicated. It's a degree in management with concentration in management or something. Management and marketing with concentration in management. I have no idea what that means. I had a lot of fun getting it. And I took, similarly to you, I took some evening classes in Juilliard, which was down the street basically from my dorm. It was fun. It was great. I enjoyed it. And I just always wanted to do that music. So I started long story short I got married I had some funds whatever money I made since I was like 14 I went to the studio and recorded whatever I could and get a song down I started writing when I was nine or ten years old I get married I start I have some more money wedding money <laughs> and I start recording an album a year and I do that for four years in a row I am trying to perform trying to create this Kalisha space because everybody I meet is sort of like, what are you doing? This is, you know, you're wasting your time. You're just going to be miserable. I I do gigs. They're frustrating most of the time, but they're also amazing. There's that double-sided emotional roller coaster going on, hard work, a lot of disappointment, a lot of excitement. And then I start, I, I meet this woman, incredible woman, Rifka Harris. She tells me I should start a podcast. I had her daughter on one of, we collaborated with her daughter on one of my songs as her bat mitzvah, one of her bat mitzvah things. Actually, she was just turning bat mitzvah. It had nothing to do with her bat mitzvah. And just for the record, because we like to change history sometimes. And then she said, why don't you start a podcast? And I said, what's a podcast? Figure it out. It's the next thing. Do it. And I'm forever grateful to her for that. And Essentially, I was at a point where I released a music video, the Shir Lashem one, where I'm on a horse, cost me close to $6,000. I'm done keeping numbers away from people. I just want them to know. I got a lot of views and a lot of attention and it felt so great. And then nothing, like nothing. And I just felt empty. I wrote a show. I hired someone to help me write a concert, later understanding that I could have written my own, you know, stories about myself between every song to do a concert. I needed somebody to censor me. So it's kosher enough for the platforms and audiences I wanted to perform for. So that I understood later. So I hired someone. We wrote a show that I performed once. And I'm just in a terrible space. So I start interviewing other women in the space. I'm interviewing artists, musicians, dancers, singers visual artists, just everything and anything. And what I'm learning is everyone's a little stuck and a little frustrated and working so hard and being told by men that this is a lost cause and do something different. And what I'm learning is the suppression that's coming, and I hate to say this, from the men and from the women. You know, don't do this. Do something that's more useful with your life. But then you, I hear from women who are bali chuva, or who are from from birth, but for 20 years, they don't sing, even though they love to do that. And now they're starting to come out with their music or a Rebison who will put out her first music video. Who, who would ever think of that? You know, Instagram allows you to have that private account and you could really control or you could have unlisted music videos and share it with 
exclusive audiences. And this online space really gave a lot of power to women who didn't want to be feminists, but women who couldn't keep quiet anymore and who were slowly dying inside, creatively speaking. It went from learning the side of your your tough kid in life, which I heard from so many women over and over, is to suppress your voice. If if Hashem, if God gave you this talent and this incredible gift, your job must be to suppress this. That's how you get into, you know, the next the the next heaven, world, whatever and, version yeah, heaven of that means and to you. rewards. Exactly. And then I, I'm exposing these ideas to know there are beautiful ways to use your voice and to use your talents that are kosher or are that are accepted within the framework. And what happens over the years is that this space is created. And of course, it's later, we, you have asifas and rabbis come out against Instagram and banning this and banning that with all the with all the side stuff that will go into happily. But this is sort of the shift that's happening, a space where from women have a voice, a space and power. And that's new. That did not exist when I was starting out. And I was really on a mission from when I started out that there there is space for that. I'm on a mission to find it and create it. And that's be before I knew the power of social media. But I knew that something has to change. Something has to happen. So... Yeah, that's I, I can definitely see how that frustration would come to the surface really, really early. Like I like my talent is in fashion and sewing and design. And it was always kind of like, well, that's not a thing that you could do. And I can only imagine how much greater that type of that that type of pushback is when to a lot of people, if you are a singer, you cannot perform in front of male audiences. That's and and most you know orthodox female singers do not perform in front of male audiences they're performing exclusively to female crowds and it's an interesting thing because i know that you didn't have you know like a typical new york basiakov type school experiences but when i was in school the girls who could sing were the really popular ones they were the really like that was that was the good talent to have me sewing costumes in the back of the room was <laughs> not cool let me tell you but like you know the girls who could sing the girls who could dance and, and looking back at it now, those were things it's like, you can do that here in this very specific situation. And then as soon as you age out of high school, you must stop because there's no right way to do that. There's no kosher way to do that. There's no proper way to do that. And in, and I can only imagine how frustrating it is to like constantly be banging your head against that wall. You asked me what I think of the Francisca show. To me, the first word that that comes to mind is fearless. Because especially now, you know, five years into the show, you will tackle anything, literally anything. The other the other week, actually, you just published an episode on surrogacy, which I am jealous of. I was going to do a surrogacy episode. I actually had someone. Um, I forgot exactly how we ended up getting connected, but she was a surrogate. She was a totally orthodox woman and she like she was a surrogate at the time that we were connected. She was still pregnant and she and and we had spoken about it and she was going to come on the show. And I had even arranged that she could do so anonymously. Like I played around with my audio settings to figure out like I, how I could hide someone's voice. Um, and in the end, she decided not to. We never ended up recording the interview. Um, at first, she said that she she was like, you know what? I really feel like I should do this after the baby is born. Like I want to give a more complete picture, which I totally understand. Um 
And then she followed up with me a couple months later and then the baby was born and everything. And the impression that I got, and this is purely one-sided and purely speculative, was that for her, it was a, a not a positive experience. I don't think it's something that she would do again. And so I, I think that it was also just too soon after everything had happened. And so it just wasn't something that she wanted to talk about. So when you came out with that surrogacy episode, I was like, oh, Francisca got Francisca got the show. She got the topic. <laughs> she, she got I'm the sorry. <laughs> no, please don't apologize. It was it was great to listen to. But the I really I really think of the show as fearless. Like, I really think of it as as something that you, like you have you have talked about um addiction and mental illness and talked about community issues in in this very just straightforward kind of way was that always the intention from the beginning or did it kind of evolve to just be like forget it i'm just going to say whatever i want it it absolutely evolved it's actually <laughs> i i love looking back and just seeing how moments totally defined and changed how i act but it started out, if you just study or look at the progression of the episodes, I start off giving a voice to the women who don't have a voice in the space. Then my first spinoff on the podcast is the No More Silence series, which I started maybe three years ago. Once a month, I interviewed a survivor of abuse. And that was before it was common to talk about it. And I remember waking up one day and just saying, I I have to do this. I just have to do this. There's so many people and they want to share and they want to talk and we're not talking about it. And people, I've seen Shabbos tables go from, oh, don't, don't, don't say that. To, yeah, we, we talk about this and kids should know this stuff happens because they need the language and they need to know it happens. And we don't just censor. And it by seeing the forces and changes and responses and actions that others are taking, the fact that there's a movement, the fact that I'm not alone, there's so many women and men out there who are just driving this new norm of what's okay and how do we push. I might be a little bit more fearless and, and really <laughs> do and say whatever I want or I find someone to go and say it for me. I don't talk so much on my podcasts. But the idea is I'm allergic to censorship and I, I, I feel like the more censored a place is, the more important. <laughs> then I go back to my studio and I'm like, okay, we, we got to talk about that. We got to talk about that. And it's in my family. My grandmother was one of, you know, I, she's such a, in that area. I remember I was 10 or 11 and I, I, I was trying to tell her something. I don't know what it was, but clearly I was trying to talk about sex. And, and she said, say the word, say the word until I stopped giggling through the word. And she made me say it 12, 15 times until I could say the word sex without, with it being a word just like bathroom or kitchen or I, that's a potato, whatever a potato. There you go. <laughs> so those, those skills as a child or, you know, growing adolescent were important seeing how normal and important and I don't know I'm rambling now but it just when I realized other people have so much to lose or have a lot of fear I didn't grow up with that I grew up in a community that my parents created designed curated call it whatever you want but obviously I had to behave and be appropriate and be a role model in, in 
you know, I was that in in ways I, I, I did the whole, I did it. I did, I put on the production and the show and I knew how to act however you need to act when we went to visit people in Lakewood or in Muncie or in Israel. And we have extremely Haredi family in Israel. I would say that's completely separate from American Haredi. So I've, I've been exposed to all kinds of Jews and obviously on the right and non-Jews and anti-Semites and non-from people. So everyone's really a different category. Ex people, people you have american families they have a child who's struggling off the dark it was so new at that time i don't know new but they would just send them to moscow for a few months or for a year and let them be a madrich or a madricha like i really got to know and see people in all kinds of spaces and when i when i moved into the mainstream world and that censorship came on a communal level not as a sense of responsibility because we're representing yiddishkeit to people who don't know what judaism is but from this is how you should be and this is what you should want to be and then seeing how that is causing so much trouble on the other end because i'm seeing sexual abuse and i'm seeing all the other things that are happening and i because I've never been inside that mainstream community. I never had that, oh, I'll get kicked out of school thing. And I live right now in Lower Marion, Philadelphia. And I don't feel like what I say is that threat. Maybe to add that Russian censorship into it where you can't just talk about whatever you want about the, the politics or any other important topic. Uh, being censored is something I cannot stand for. And I have nothing to lose I've I, I have nothing to lose other than what I've already lost, which is if I wanted to advertise in Mishpacha, no. If it, I, I've lost I've I've lost opportunities clearly due to the topics I address and tackle. And how do you know that you've lost it's okay. opportunities? They've told me we've been we were working on an article for Mishpacha and then they pulled it after one of after they discovered one of my music videos. And they actually wrote this email that was <laughs> my heart was pounding when I read it. Um, real things, re real um, schools and camps just not being interested. Um, and, and that's OK. And probably even collaborators, singers that would sing with me. But I, I push and and I push because. I, I don't know why I push, but I have a calling and I'm doing it. I think you push because you think there's more important things than being popular. It's really easy to be popular. All you need to do is like not have an opinion. So I find it so hard to be popular. For me, whenever I did censor myself, that concert I wrote and I performed in Muncie in high school, that killed my soul. I couldn't do that. For me to not talk about a topic or to not sing an English song that's beautiful on my stories because I won't be invited to a Jewish uh, high school or a camp to perform. I I'm, I'm okay with that. So I'm writing English music now and I have other, I have other streams of dreams <laughs> that I'm pursuing as well. Right. I think that also when it comes to from society, there really is becoming an even deeper and deeper divide, especially when you look at like American orthodoxy. You have your, I'm I'm going to say like yeshivish or Hasidish or like your more right wing communities where you're not going to have, where like you're not going to see smartphone. If you're seeing social media use, it's under the covers. If um, where like issues are not really talked about, where it's more 
And there are beautiful things about that as well. I'm not a member of those communities, so I can't I can't speak to those. I have family members who are, but where there is a much more sheltered way of looking at life. And then you have, I mean, I'm going to put myself more in the mainstream, which is the most biased thing I've probably ever said on this show. But then you have like Orthodox, right? Like Shabbos, Kashras. I would eat in anybody's kitchen that, you know, that lives their life the way that I do. Um, But we are aware of what's happening in the world and unwilling to put up with the kind of BS that is just becoming that much more exhaustive. Like when you mentioned Mishpacha, and I have no problem calling out Mishpacha on this podcast. I think the fact that there's any from publication that does not show a woman's face is the biggest Avera of our time. I think that that is the biggest contributor to the kind of low level sexism that you see perpetuated throughout the community. This idea that like acceptable jobs for women are, you know, teacher, OT, speech therapist, and like maybe a nurse if you're really ambitious. Not that there's anything wrong with those jobs, but if that is your limit of acceptability, then you really are placing, you're, you're placing constraints for re- for no other reason other than to have those constraints. Um, and we know that there's, that like Torah does not support that. Like if, even if you look at Aisha's Chaya, like she was a hustler. And that's something to, I think, you know, to know and to appreciate. And because we see this like deepening divide, because you have these from women, these Orthodox women who are living full Orthodox lives, who are frankly fed up with some of the notions of Orthodoxy that have become societal, but are not Torah based that. And and then at the same time, because it's a natural to have a reaction to that, you have the same people who are digging into those societal things that are important to them. And so you have this, this this like we're moving so much farther apart from each other where the extreme become more extreme and the um and and the the i don't know like the more middle become more middle or like become less religious or whatever it is like you you you're losing that middle ground which i think is such a shame and it then then people get confused like uh when i was on your show we discussed you know we we discussed some of the um what's it called the um, blanking out the criticisms of from fashion of orthodox fashion one of the things you said was that it's that it's not sneeze that it's not modest and and we spoke and go listen to my episode on francisco show for my full answer to that but i think that what ends up happening is that if you have someone like i'm gonna put the i don't know that much about you but i'm gonna put us in the same category and you can correct me if i'm wrong where you know two orthodox women who cover elbows knees and collarbones and also really don't want to be putting up with all this crap for men like nobody knows what to do with that do you know what i mean when you have someone who is like fully following halacha and also not putting up with like all of the societal stuff it gets very confusing for people so i do want to add nuance to this element that you brought out it's not a bunch of men making up a bunch of rules about women which it is sort of but that mishpacha ad that recently was out with the crossbody. It oh, was God. all purple and pink. Did you see that? Yeah. So there was a right. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, there was an ad that was taken out of Mishwaka magazine, which is a mainstream Orthodox publication, basically saying that if you wear a crossbody bag, so imagine like a belt that basically goes between your boobs, like the same way that a seatbelt would, um, that this is um what what did it say? Like uh, don't don't be tempting to men or something like that. Like it don't wear a crossbody bag unless you have a coat on because it makes your boobs stick out. Please continue. Okay, so that wasn't taken out by a man. That was right. taken out by a woman. So let's say you had the round table and halacha, Jewish law is being established and the women are going to make up the rules for the women. We would be in burqas. So on one hand, we don't want the men 
making up the rules. We don't want the women. But so there's this new concept of we, we need everyone's voices at the table. And we can't just turn culture into new Jewish law that separates from Jewish values, that creates its own religion and cult in a way. So growing up outside of this, it's so clear to me when I see cultural values and what's another interesting thing. Okay, so cultural values versus the original Jewish idea behind things and the way Jewish is and yeah, and what orthodoxy looks like today. Another thing I learned is that when I went to religious leaders or people in authority spaces, and I would say, look, you are, le this is happening. And then they would say, I'm not a leader. I'm not the one making the rules. And what I noticed is that it, society turns something popular. The value becomes conformity. And that takes its own wave. And that's how the things change. It's not like necessarily a rabbi comes out and says, hey, no more this, no more that. You have the value of being the same or fitting in so you can ultimately, and I did an episode on this recently, the goal is to get marry off your kids. That's the right. goal. So you, everything you're doing is so your kids could get a good shidduch, so they could get a good match. So at, it's not even coming from the top. It's coming from those forces within and those moras, those women rebbitsons and teachers in the in the high schools who are putting on those extra stringencies, stringent, yeah, those extra things. And then that value of you just want to conform and blend in, be the same, takes its own power. And as an outsider, I see that very clearly. And to me, that's not Jewishness or Judaism. It can be a beautiful form of it, but that's not what makes you Orthodox and Jewish. So, and I have to stay authentic to who I am and how I experience my Judaism because I am spiritually very connected. And I did find a lot of my voice and strength through yoga, which was outside of Judaism. But it connected me back. I'm doing an episode on this in the next few weeks. So I'm excited about that. So and, and that's interesting that I needed to find that inspiration and connection back to my connection to God through something outside because something within was turning me off. What? So you're talking about yoga as like a spiritual practice. Like yoga is like because it's cause like there, a there mindset and a way of living and accepting yourself and being true to your authentic self versus conforming, living up to expectations. So that idea that I learned when I was becoming, when I was doing my teacher training certification and so just for, the little speeches yoga teachers make during my practice. Right. Like that to me is so fascinating because I think that like reaching outside of like the community, the religion, whatever you want to call it for a spiritual thing, that must've been like a little bit of a mind trip for you. So it wasn't, I went purely for exercise, but oh, everything okay, I'm hearing, sense. oh, it's Torah. Oh, this is a Torah concept. Oh, the, but why, why don't I get that from a Torah source? Why am I not getting that feeling or, or this satisfaction from a Torah source? Oh, because it's diluted and covered up by crossbody ads and uh, we're black or whatever else it needs. So you can get married and don't say this and don't move like this when you sing and don't sing and that I, I needed somebody to just release my voice and release uh, I can talk about it more but 
we, we had an exercise and I remember feeling so blocked in my throat chakra, which is, I was just, I, I can't speak. I can't say, I can't sing. I can't be, I am just keeping my head down. And when you say, when I tell you I was married, I'm married for 11 years and started my podcast five and a half years ago. What was I doing the first four years? I don't know. And the people around the community didn't know us the first five years, <laughs> the first four years. I, I, it's almost like I didn't exist. I was just, I, I was, um, you know, when the beers in the, in the winter. <laughs> hibernating. Hibernating. I was hibernating. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's a very interesting way to, to approach it. I think that what's also very interesting when we think about this as a whole is that as a community, there are acceptable issues to have. There are like there like we can all kind of accept on an on an emotional level or on an intellectual level that everybody has hardships in life. But there are certain um, hardships that I think like are more that like that like like um, miscarriage, for example, that got a lot of airtime. That got a lot of airtime relatively recently. And I think that it also bloomed into like, a, you know, this general like infertility awareness kind of thing. And I think that now it's like, honestly, it's like almost expected every single time I see like someone like some influencer announce a pregnancy. It's like, this was really, really hard for us also. I'm like, I don't really care. Maybe this is just me, but like, I don't care what's happening in your bedroom. Like, this is none of my business. But I feel like there are certain issues like that that are acceptable. Being sick. Like having cancer or something like that. I don't think that 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 there's really much of a stigma associated with that. But dealing with addiction is, I think, still. I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. What what are the issues that like we've gotten over? So the acceptable issues. Do you mean by kosher issues? I just mean like I feel like there are there are hardships that we allow people to have. Like mishpacha, so, I'm so yeah. happy you're bringing this up. I just had a conversation a couple of months ago with somebody. Kosher issues and non-kosher issues, <laughs> and the reason you're more taboo is because you talk about the non-kosher issues. Meaning, somebody who has a hard time dating and they're single for a long time—that's a kosher issue, right. you know. If if you're having, um, if you have some interesting sex kinks and, and you can't control yourself and you're cheating on your spouse, that's not a kosher issue, you know, or, um, OK, not even cheating on your spouse, but you, you sleep in one bed because you don't want to have two beds in your house. That's something that just comes to mind, you know, something private. That's not a kosher issue. What's another not kosher issue? Eating not kosher or not keeping Shabbos, not kosher issue. Would you call that? No, I'd like see. How about me, this? To me, being these... in non-shomer nagir relationships, not kosher issues. Yes, but I think that I think that the the distinction having for... mental health issues, kosher issue, right? Yeah. But I also think that like having mental health issue is let's say let's like you said like a kosher issue versus a not kosher issue, and I think that you're defining like cocaine is not kosher issue, right? But Zoloft and now we have what's what's the name of the new um... Ozempic. Olympic. That that's a very kosher. kosher. Yes. So, like, I think yes. There's that overweight, being overweight, kosher issue. Let's talk about let, that's very relatable. Let's talk about eating disorders and um, you know, ev everything related to that kosher issue. Talking about um, struggling with your faith, not kosher issue. What do you think right? is the difference between a kosher issue and a not kosher one? Infertility, kosher issue. I, I think what's out of your control versus what seems to be in your control. 
potentially, or oh, something that violates halacha, something that doesn't violate halacha. Right. So See, I put those in two separate you. categories. But yes, I, I hear the I hear the difference. This idea of like infertility is not categories. something that you did, right? Like, what is it? Like twenty five percent of women will miscarriage will miscarry in their life or something like that. Um, as opposed to like if you are struggling with eating kosher, that's something that you are actively doing. So just don't do it. Like that's or not you beautiful. have a boyfriend or right. you're, you know, not yeah. kosher issue, wearing pants or not covering your hair, not kosher issue. It's like right. a non-tolerate zone. Um, whatever. Right. Like, I'm curious, where do you think like addiction falls in this? LGBT, not kosher issue. Right. Addiction. So there depends what you're addicted to, I would say. Right. Like alcohol. Fine. Sure. You know, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Cocaine. No. Or heroin. No. Correct. Adderall. Maybe. Sure. Right. Adderall's fine. Not fine, but like it's it's acceptable to talk about. Kosher issue, right. I like this phrase, kosher issue. That's that's the title of the podcast episode, by the way. Um the You'll have to come back on to yeah. Yeah. Kosher issues with Francisca. Um the yeah, it's yeah, I I'm I wish that we could even intimacy is kosher issues. Like the intimacy for from families or even from sex ed, like what do you Depending mean by that? Depending on age, what do you mean by that? Becoming kosher. If you talk about taras mishpacha, which is family purity laws, if it, with as long as it's within the concept, context of marriage and halacha, depending on which age or group you're talking to, obviously, if I'd go to yeshiva and talk about from sex ed, that would not be kosher. But if I'm talking about intimacy struggles and issues in for married couples or mikvah or nida, which are Things related to the related. to the sex lives of Orthodox couples, right? Right. See, the thing that I find very interesting is that I think that I'm not sure. I'm not sure how kosher the sex ed issue is because I mean, so mikvah. Let me just tell you, people oh. in Muncie and Lakewood and Brooklyn, I got, pe- I got, you know, those from people who don't look like they ever have any issues anywhere said that that episode changed their experience with mikvah. And right. they've been, let's say, going for 40 years, you know? Right. Give me some background okay, on the episode impossible. that you're talking about for anyone who might not know. 40 years impossible because once you hit menopause, you need to be married and then okay. it needs to be okay. pre-menopause. A very long time, okay. not the point. A very long time. <laughs> so mikvah is the spiritual ritual, which is of dunking in a body of water that comes from skies or natural sources that women go into after their seven clean days post menstruation and that ritual that dunking is which is supervised by another person it is the act that transitions a couple being separated physically and intimately to reuniting again and being able to have you know touch or well sure but even touching or any other forms of contact physical contact Right. And and tell me a little bit about the episode that you did around this that, you know, had such. So I had a sex therapist on who's also the director of the Lower Marion Mikvah, which is where I live. And she trains mikvah attendants throughout the country and perhaps even Israel. It Basic stuff like telling mikvah attendants to not talk to the women unless they're talk to first or initiated giving women the autonomy over their bodies and explaining that there's a dynamic here where one woman is dressed the other woman is in a robe and they're 
and there needs to be safe space and certain guidelines where women could feel safe to do this mitzvah without feeling like some woman is saying, okay, get undressed. Let me check your back. Let me check your nails and your toes. Did you do this? Did you do that? Because that can be a very normal or okay or uncomfortable or whatever conversation if they're both dressed, but then put them in a, in a situation where I know you're going home and having sex tonight with your husband, you're undressed, you're going now naked into the in, into this body of water, doesn't matter that I'm 50 years old and look like a grandma to you potentially, but I'm enforcing myself on you and I'm clothed, you are not. Just giving women that permission of understanding that there's this unequal dynamic, changed, changed, that gave women that power again, that this is my mitzvah, I get to decide how I do it. And that woman is there just to supervise or to uh, be a witness to my dunking and not making sure I'm doing my mitzvah right. Just like you have, you don't have rabbis standing in your kitchen making sure that how you're cooking is kosher because we don't have any other mitzvahs, especially in such an intimate private area where you have such kind of supervision. So that right. it just gave that perspective and paradigm shift and it gave people autonomy and that self sense of space and I, I, uh, it, it's, that, it's that empowering aspect of realizing like Correct. this is not this is some this is a place where I have voice like this is I I mean I was not married until I I it wasn't until I was married that I realized that some people had negative mikvah experiences and there are many women like you who were like oh it's interesting anyone else has a different experience which is great and Carly Hadash who did that episode she just explained she does this with the with the mikvah attendants train training them but she explains to the women where their job starts and where it ends and where you have a right to say something because you don't even have your husband's checking you or or making sure you counted correctly why do you have some stranger asking you if you did those things we should right right and so, and so i for people to understand yeah. that like this is a positive this this can be a positive experience and if it does not feel like one then you need to change mikvahs then you need to either report that lady and get her fired um which i don't feel even a little bit bad about doing or you um or you change mikvahs and right. you know let's most say you're visiting israel and some lady is yapping around in hebrew and you don't know what she's saying and she's being very aggressive and you're staying by your in-laws and it the whole thing's already uncomfortable it could these things, just knowing what your rights are and what your place is and what their place is really helpful. Right. And I yeah. think that that's and, why. Yeah, go. Yeah. No. And just learning from the Sparty community and culture, they the way they introduce mikvah into a woman's life is very different from the way Ashkenazim do it. With Ashkenazim, it's that like quiet thing we just have to get over with and just do and let's not talk about it. Whereas Spartan, uh, I hopefully one day we'll do an episode on it. They they have a party. All the friends and close family members, all female, come to that mikvah the first time. They, food, balloons, I don't know, sushi, whatever they do. And she goes and she does the mikvah, the prep maybe, and the dunking. And it's, it's that they dance. It, it's a different attitude. I'm not saying we should all go and adopt it. But knowing that it's not that shameful, quiet, let's pretend it doesn't exist just knowing these experiences happen. And that's one of the things I love about the podcast is that we introduce different ideas and tra tra traditions to people, not necessarily to change how they behave, but to give them a paradigm shift of where these mitzvahs may be coming from, where these ideas and rituals come from and how they are designed potentially to enhance our life.
And, and we've done exactly that. We're doing yeah, I you I would 100% agree with that. That's definitely Yeah. Amen. I agree. Uh, the the mm-hmm. that that kind of outlook I think can really shift how the community also views itself. Um We've spent so much time talking about the Francisca show. If somebody wants to listen to it or learn more about you, Francisca, where can they go? They could go on Instagram, Francisca Music, and any podcast app you listen to, The Francisca Show. It's F-R-A-N-C-I-S-K-A. And I'm going to link it in the, the show Francisca notes so show. that it is really easy to find. Um, and uh, last thing I want to ask you. you, Francisca, what does it mean to you to make an impact? What does it mean to me? Everything. It's what gets me up in the morning. So it really energizes me. I'm grateful for the drive and for those, for for having this calling and ability to pursue it. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Francisca. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ricky. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Francisca or listen to my episode on her show, the links are all in the show notes. On the last episode, I spoke with stylist Melissa Epstein about getting dressed and feeling good in our skin. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 20 people listed by Oragu Note as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getorg slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fevin. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifty Itzquits. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.